Hey everyone, this is Jason Shepard, and you're listening to the Instrument Pilot Podcast by M0A.com, where a good pilot is always learning. What are some things that I do differently to better understand IFR weather conditions? Hey everyone, Jason Shepard here of M0A. Dot com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Instrument Pilot Podcast. So great to meet so many of you at EAA AirVenture Oshkosh this year. Really had a wonderful time uh, saying hi and hanging out with you guys. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk briefly about understanding IFR weather. Some things that I look at in regards to making go and no-go decisions and, and little things we work through that way. Some things I look for that are different than what others look at. Let me give you an example here. If you've been lucky enough and if you were lucky enough to see our JFK Jr. Uh, seminar from Oshkosh, if not, uh, everything was recorded and sometime in the near future, as in this year, I'll be releasing that. Uh, as well, because I'm going to start working on some new seminars, and I'll be happy to let that one out of the bag and let you guys um, fully enjoy it for sure. Uh, but one thing in the JFK Jr. Accident Analysis Seminar that I go through is JFK Jr. was just a VFR guy. He departed at basically sunset, and the temperature and dew point at the time of departure were one degree apart. Well, again, guys, if, if it's sunset, basically, it's only going to get cooler. The temperature and the dew point are one degree apart. The temperature is going to get closer and closer to that dew point. Is the visibility going to get better or worse? Well, you and I both know it's going to get worse, right? Close temperature and dew point means visible moisture, fog, low ceilings, that sort of stuff. You know, And again, that seminar will be online for you to enjoy uh, sometime in the near future. But it's little things like that. Okay, my temperature and my dew point are here. Is my temperature going to go up and get further away from my dew point? Or is my temperature going to go down and get closer to my dew point? Tells me a lot about what my visibility will be like and what that'll do. Some other things I do that are a little bit different. Now again, we do the usual look at prog charts, look at the radar, read METARs, read TAFs, but I want to help you go beyond that sort of stuff and let you in a little bit into our world as to what I'm looking at. Some things I like to do, and my online ground school members have heard me say this before, is I like to track the METAR trends. I like to track the METAR trends. What do I mean by that? Well, on aviationweather.gov and a few of our uh, aviation electronic flight bag type apps will do this. They allow you to see previous METARs. I'll pull up the previous six hours worth of METARs and read them from oldest to newest to see if I can notice any trends. For example, look at the altimeter setting. If the altimeter setting starts off at 3000 and then drops to 29 or 9 or 7, and then 9 or 5, then 9 or 4, then 9 or 0, and you see the pressure is continuing to drop, what does low pressure mean to me usually? Low pressure is usually poor weather, right? So if low pressure is poor weather, and I look at my previous six METARs, and the pressure continues to drop, 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 
Well, that, if that trend continues, the weather is going to continue to deteriorate. That's something I do when I'm flying. If I'm going on a long cross country, Oftentimes, when you get handed off to the next controller, he says, uh, you know, radar contact, whatever, uh, Ocala altimeter, 2909 or 2. And what do you do? You just go to the altimeter and you adjust it. On your G1000, you press the borrow button and you adjust it. I actually write those down to build a trend as I go. Is the area I'm heading to high pressure or low pressure? What is the general trend? And it's hard to get a general trend on a 50, even a 100 nautical mile flight. But when you guys are departing on some of these long IFR cross countries spanning 200, you know, 300 miles, let's say, you can really start to build and notice those trends. Other trends I look for in the METARs include things like cloud cover. So there's a layer. There's a few layer at 2,500 feet. Then all of a sudden, the next METAR, it's a scattered layer at 2,500 feet. Now, next METAR, it's a broken layer at 2,500 feet. What are the odds that the next METAR, it's going to be an overcast layer at 2,500 feet? Looking for those trends, watching those trends in the altitude of those cloud layers. It may stay a scattered layer, but it continues to descend. It's at 2,500, then it's at 2,300, then it's at 2,000. And as it gets closer to the surface, is it going to just stay a scattered layer? No, because the next thing to go is visibility. Then after that's become a broken layer, then they're just going to drop it all the way down to start talking vertical visibility or fog or mist, whatever else they want to call it. Look for those sort of trends in your METARs. Don't just get away with reading what's current and hot right now. Look at history to help you with your go and no-go decisions when looking and understanding IFR weather conditions. You know, in the summertime, some things I look at is I do my best to avoid cold fronts. Cold fronts in the summertime are always bad news. I don't care where you are. A cold front in the summertime... This is why the Midwest is Tornado Alley, because they experience those cold fronts first. In fact, the same cold fronts that end up hitting us down here in Florida have already long gone through the Midwest and hopefully lost some of their power before they get to Florida, but a lot of times they'll gain some power as well. But the Midwest usually gets them first. That's where we get those nasty embedded thunderstorms, our squall lines, our tornado-type activity all comes from cold fronts in the summertime. When I look at a prognostic chart on aviationweather.gov or in ForeFlight or on iFlightPlan or FlyQ, whatever your app of uh, choice is, I look at the prog charts. I look for the cold fronts. I look for the stationary fronts too because the stationary fronts are just hanging out, dumping a whole bunch of, you know, who knows what kind of precipitation, rain in the summertime. Don't want to deal with that but I really don't want to deal with a cold front in the summertime. I'll fly behind a cold front in the summertime. It's going to be a lot, a lot of wind usually, a lot of turbulence and some bumps. But man, have you ever noticed after a cold front passes how great the visibility can be? Now there's two or three days of just nothing. Like you don't even want to drive your car to work, let alone go out and fly when a cold front passes through in the summertime. It just dismal. 
But man, those two or three days after, it can be a little bit windy, but the visibility is just amazing after a cold front passes like that in the summertime. Kind of clears out all that humid junk air. And, and keep in mind, you, you hear cold front in the summertime, it's not necessarily making it cool, but it could be 95 degrees in Florida and a cold front could just be a change as it could be 90 degree air moving through instead of the usual 95 we're used to. And that could be just enough to trigger those nasty thunderstorms. Cold front just means cooler than the air it's passing through. It doesn't have to be, you know, frigid air like we think about in the wintertime. Now, that being said, in the wintertime, you guys have listened to the podcast where I talk about personal minimums. I will not go flying if the winds are greater than this, ceiling, you know, lower than this, uh, that sort of stuff. In the wintertime, I like to add to my personal minimums. I will not go flying if the freezing level is lower than blank. Because let's be honest, the the only time I've picked up icing in a general aviation aircraft, and anytime Uncle Larry shared his icing story with you guys in our, our online ground school member webinars, the freezing level often doesn't end up being where they say it is. In fact, the day we picked up icing in a Cessna 150 of all aircraft, we were 3,000 feet under the reported freezing level. And that's just how freezing levels work. They're just kind of... Um, you know, mathematically they can calculate them, but there's a lot of difference between what happens on paper, what happens in the real world. Uncle Larry's story is very, very similar. He was well, you know, thousands of feet under the freezing level, picked up icing. If any of you on this webinar have picked up icing, I guarantee it's because you were under the freezing level, but, but you picked up icing anyways. How do I know that? Because you and I know that flight into known icing conditions uh, certainly isn't permitted. So if you're flying and the freezing level's in the clouds, well, you'd be flying in known icing conditions and that would be illegal. But regardless, I've picked up icing in a GA plane, a Cessna 150, and I was 3,000 feet under the reported freezing level. In fact, I'll never forget the story. I'm flying the Cessna 150, and I was in the left seat at the time. We were passing through, we were, I can't remember quite where we were at. We were flying from Ohio to back to Massachusetts. Um, so we we're somewhere in between there. And I was in charge of flying the airplane. We were in solid IFR. I felt good though, because we were, we were 3000 feet under the freezing level. I wasn't too worried about it. Um, smooth time in the clouds, nothing too major. And I remember the, the gentleman sitting next to me, uh, I said, how, how are we looking? He goes, well, his exact words were, we're making snow cones on the strut. And I remember, I said, what? And next thing I know, the window flies open and he reaches with, we had gloves on, it was just that cold. Car, the cabin heat really didn't work that well, nor did I trust it that much with potential carbon monoxide issues. Um, he reaches out and kind of swipes his hand. It's a Cessna 150, so you can basically reach out and touch the strut and takes his hand like almost down the strut and across the, the, the door and the window area and brings his hand back in the plane and goes, see? <laughs> and I made the mistake of looking away. Could have became spatially disorientated. Here I am supposed to be focused on flying, but literally when he said, we're making snow cones on the strut, and I said, what? He acted as if I didn't believe him, so he felt it necessary to bring some of the ice in the airplane to show me what was occurring outside. 
sure enough, once I saw that, that was enough to give ATC a call. And, you know, thankfully, uh, we were literally right over top of an airport. I just smoothly bring that power back. We broke out and we had a nice, you know, VFR uh, landing because we broke out about, you know, 2,000 feet or so. So it was, it was fine. Um, and we ended up just staying the night there because I trusted where the freezing level was at. Um, I was 3,000 feet under what it was reported. And we picked up a lot of ice. We actually, when we landed, um, there was still ice on the plane. That's always a good indication that you picked up some serious ice when you land and there's still ice on the plane because oftentimes we're told in icing conditions, oh, descend to warmer air. Well, we descended certainly to warmer air. We got back down to the surface and although we didn't pick up any more ice, the ice that was on there wasn't going anywhere. And it was just, a, it, it was like rhyme type ice, uh, mixed ice would probably be a better way to explain it. Um, you know, certainly a situation I, I, you don't plan to put yourself into that. No one goes flying into known icing conditions unless they're properly equipped. You know, and this brings up that point that just because you have an IFR rating doesn't mean you go blazing approaches down to minimums, doesn't mean you go, you know, flying into wild weather. In fact, all an IFR rating allows me to do, really, is fly without reference to the horizon. Nowhere on there does it say you can go flying into embedded thunderstorms. People think that now that I have an IFR rating, I'll never get stuck again. What a, what a misconception it is, because I've had student pilots that... Uh, or private pilots, let's say, that, geez, Jace, I really need to do my instrument. I, I have to keep, you know, missing these meetings and driving to these meetings because the, the ceilings are too low. And I think, yeah, I mean, sure, an IFR rating would help a little bit in those cases, but an IFR rating doesn't mean you go flying in the thunderstorms. You avoid them just like you did in your VFR days. It, it just allows you to fly without reference to the horizon. It allows you to shoot approaches. But I use an IFR rating to get on top of a nice stratus layer, to shoot an approach down and hopefully break out before the final approach fix. Call me old school, call me lame, but my days of shooting approaches down to minimums, at least in my currently equipped aircraft, which doesn't have a GPS, uh, IFR approved GPS that is, doesn't have uh, an autopilot, I'm not hand flying an ILS down to minimums with my wife and daughter on board. It's, they won't get a kick out of that. And I certainly won't get a kick out of that. Um, times change, I guess, when you're an old married man like I am. But um, there's just little things to think about. You get an IFR rating to save on the insurance, because you do save quite a bit on insurance if you're an aircraft owner. And you get it to keep you safe in the event you get into a jam. And you get an IFR rating for those days you wake up and it's foggy and you know the fog is going to burn off in 45 minutes and you need to go somewhere. And by the time you get there, the fog's already burned off. Or you get an IFR rating, do what I said, when it's a nice stratus layer at 1,000 feet and I can break out just shy or just after the final approach fix, at least in my airplane. Now, that would change if I want to go out and purchase an airplane that I get very comfortable with, with synthetic vision, with an autopilot, with obviously an IFR-approved GPS. That could certainly change. It's still my personal minimums wouldn't be the published minimums for sure, but it would certainly adjust that a little bit. Listen, if you guys need more help understanding IFR weather, or have an IFR check ride coming up, 
We have a book called Pass Your Instrument Pilot Checkride. I sat in on hundreds of instrument pilot checkrides, wrote down every single question they could ask and then did ask on those instrument pilot checkrides, then wrote down the correct answer there for you, as well as I did an audio book, just like you're listening to me now. I read the question like a real checkride, I pause for a second to let you think about the answer in your head, and then I give you that proper answer. Think about it as a couple hour long mock check ride while you're walking the dog, while you're on the treadmill at the gym, while you're driving to work, whatever it may be for you. Whatever you, we're taking the excuses out of studying, really. Studying on the go. Available as an ebook, audiobook, as well as a paperback from Amazon. Go to the m0a.com store. Go to m0a.com in the top right corner, click on our products, and you can find all of that there. The book is called Pass Your Instrument Pilot Checkride. Do check that out. Thank you so much for helping to make this podcast and this five really five podcast series, number one in iTunes in the aviation category. We couldn't have done it without you guys. Continue to listen. Be sure to subscribe in iTunes. Leave us a honest review is all we ask and share it with your friends. Enjoy the rest of your day. And most importantly, remember that a good pilot is always learning. Have a great day, guys. See ya.